You'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we will be this morning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The title of our sermon is Alive. And our key words for worshipers in training are dead, alive, and trespasses. Now, all throughout history, there have been a lot of different ideas offered about what sin is. I'm sure if you uh, went to the most popular place in Rincon, Walmart, and you took a random poll of people who were there, on any given day, you're going to get a whole host of answers ranging from those that are biblically faithful to those that are absolutely absurd. Let me give you a few examples from various times in history. The ancient philosopher Plato said this, I am fairly certain that no wise man believes anyone sins willingly or willingly perpetrates any evil or base act. They know very well that all evil or base action is involuntary. No one who either knows or believes that there is another possible course of action better than the one he is following will ever continue on his present course when he might choose the better. That was Plato. Aristotle said, sin is any tragic decision that leads to suffering. Uh, The theology of Pelagianism, it's a 5th century idea, it was based on the Roman teacher Pelagius. Uh, That taught that people had the ability to fulfill the commands of God by exercising their free will apart from the grace of God. In other words, a person is so totally free and capable of doing what they want to do, good or bad, without the aid of any divine intervention whatsoever. So, Pelagianism teaches that man is basically good. And that when Adam fell, Adam only hurt himself. None of his descendants were affected by his sin. So Pelagius taught that a person is born in the same purity and moral abilities as Adam was. And so God's grace just kind of helps us come to God in the end. That's Pelagianism. Uh, ancient mysticism taught that a person could, could rise up above sin and turn to what they call pure consciousness. And so man would have a better knowledge of the love of God, make man more determined to struggle for pure consciousness. In other words, that man could obtain perfection in this life. So sin could be overcome and we could be rid of it. Now, the postmodern ideas of sin are entirely subjective. Academic postmodernism says that sin was simply a geo-historical way to explain why bad things happen to good people or why the rain would come and kill the crops or why grandma just randomly died one day. It's not something that describes actions of any individuals because each individual determines their own morality. The American idea of sin today is that we just don't need to be reminded of anything negative. One prominent American television preacher with a glassy smile and silly hair said, There's enough pushing people down in life already. 
when they come to my church or our meetings, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God's good and that they can move forward, that they can break an addiction and that they can become who God created them to be. We don't mention sin. And of course, in 2016, all around, sin is the expression of any idea that is contrary to my idea in which I take offense because the meaning of tolerance does not extend beyond one's own personal view of the world. There are no shortage of ideas about what sin is. But the Bible, from start to finish, tells us the truth about sin. And this morning, as we look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the first five verses of chapter 2, he's going to give us a very revealing look at what sin is. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at what sin is and where it comes from, what sin does, and ultimately the remedy for sin. So we'll read together beginning in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And in your blue ESV Bibles, if you're using those, the text is on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved." So the first thing this passage answers for us is what sin is and where it comes from. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Now, from time to time, you will hear people say something like, I don't like churches because all they want to do is tell me what's wrong with me. Which is sort of like saying, I don't go to the doctor because all the doctor does is tell me that I am sick. And some people really never go to the doctor for that reason. Both responses are a complete denial of reality. So just like we often have physical issues with our bodies, we always have moral issues with our hearts, and those moral issues are related to our sinful condition as human beings. So, we have to understand sin. We have to talk about it. And in fact, while there have been many attempts to do otherwise, there's no way that we can even make sense of a world without a biblical understanding of sin. And the world doesn't want to admit that there's actually a problem, especially in our culture. And they don't want to admit that they have an inherent understanding of sin. But everything around us is actually based on the premise of sin existing in every aspect of life. Let me give you a few examples. Our national government is set up, in theory, 
to keep one branch of government from becoming too powerful. Why? Because of sin. So that one does not receive more power than the other and can take over and become tyrannical. Uh, it's, the, it's the reason why companies have audits of their accounts to make sure no one is stealing from the company. It's why there are security cameras in stores to catch people shoplifting. It's why we have police and investigators and military forces. You see, nobody wants to say it, but none of these measures make any sense whatsoever unless we actually believe that sin exists. So as a result, everything else gets blamed. Right now, for some people, the biggest problem in the world is the opposing political party. Or maybe it's a lack of education. We need freer, better education, and that will fix all of our problems. Or maybe it's affordable housing or a higher minimum wage or more or less guns or higher or lower taxes. We can go on and on for all the answers everyone wants to provide for how we fix the problem of a broken world. They're all important issues. They're things that Christians should talk and think about and care about, but none of them actually get to the heart of the problem, which is sin. Sin, Paul tells us, is our following after the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see that in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, Paul says we're following after the course of the world. So we have the world. And then he says we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is the devil. He is the prince of the power of the air. And then in verse 3, the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind. The flesh. So you see the three enemies, the three, the three things we are following after. This is sin when we follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we see this repeated throughout Scripture over and over. Now the children's catechism is helpful here. The question is, what is sin? Sin is any transgression of the law of God. What is meant by transgression? Doing what God forbids. So... Sin is doing what God has forbidden in his law by following after our natural desires that arise as temptations from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's our definition of sin. And James, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see, any transgression of the law of God is born in my heart when I decide to follow after. Note Paul's language in verses 2 and 3. When I follow after whatever is being put before me in the world in the flesh, or by the devil. I choose sin. I willfully sin. We have to be clear on that. The world, the flesh, and the devil don't make you sin. They tempt you, 
and you choose to follow after them. And apart from Christ, we have no other ability but to follow after them. It is our very nature apart from Christ. We cannot not sin. And all of the Bible identifies this, that we are born with a disobedient, sinful nature. In Psalm 51, in verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I am by nature a sinner from the moment of conception. This is the doctrine of original sin. As a result of the fall of mankind in the garden with Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam represented all men in the garden. So when Adam fell, all of mankind became those who were subject to the results of the fall. So none of us have to learn how to sin, right? If you've ever raised a child, you know that's true. You were born disobedient. And apart from Christ, you spend the rest of your life trying to find ways to be more sophisticated in how you sin, but it's all there by our nature. So we want to continually look out there and blame all of those things out there for the real problem. Everything that is wrong is there and them. But the Bible tells us we won't get over any problem whatsoever until we realize the biblical doctrine of sin and the problem with the universe isn't out there and it's not them. It's here and it's me. I am the biggest problem in this world. And notice, I didn't say you, I said it's me. And all human beings naturally live in utter denial of the depth of their own sinfulness. And so nothing changes until we recognize that the problem is me. There's no way out until we're willing to look at ourselves and admit the worst. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about some of the things that Jesus has said and just how radical they were. Let me give you a few examples. Take Mark 7, for example. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is being challenged by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Uh, Specifically, they're challenging him about the issue of cleanliness. Jesus and his disciples, the Pharisees note, are not following after the customs of cleanliness as it pertains to their hands before uh, washing and eating at a meal. And Jesus turns all of their tradition upside down, and he says... There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of that person are what defile him. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So you see, so often we want to classify sin as something external. 
And so we have very crafty ways of keeping it at that level in our minds. So we play silly games. As Christians, often we do silly things. We make sure that externally everything looks really cleaned up. And we make sure it looks nice. And we don't let anybody inside. So on the outside, the things I say, the things I do, the way I say them, the way I do them, I want all of that to be cleaned up because those are the visible parts. So we're very intentional about things like using Christian language in our conversations. Or we might volunteer in all the right areas. We might, we might drop references in a conversation like, you know, when I was doing my quiet time this morning. Or we make up some story on social media. It's 2.30 a.m. My child has not gone to sleep for five days. And I am so thankful to be here with them when they're crying. No, you're not, you liar. You would sell a kidney to go to sleep right now. But that doesn't sound like self-sacrifice. That doesn't sound like godliness. And Jesus comes around and says, you can say all of the right things externally. You can pretend like it's all cleaned up and all okay. But sin is what's going on in your heart right now. Because not only is that not what you're thinking, you're saying you're thinking that. And so you're lying on top of it. And eventually what's really going on there, it is going to come spewing out of you. I once had a lady tell me she was leaving her church because she did so many things for so many people, but she never deserved the recognition that she, she never received the recognition that she thought she deserved. So that told me something right there. She spent all of her time serving externally, everyone assuming she was doing it with a desire to honor God and to serve his people, but at the heart of all of it, was her desire to be recognized, to be applauded, to be built up in her pride. You know, Jesus knows how to deal with that kind of mentality. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus? He said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, oh, that's easy. Obey the commandments. Love God. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lie, don't commit adultery. And of course, the expected response came back from the rich young ruler. Well, yes, master, I've kept all of those commandments in my life. No problem. Well, what was he talking about? He really thought he did. Externals. On the outside, it all looked good. So what does Jesus do? He says, oh, by the way, one more thing. There is actually something you lack. I'm really happy for you for obeying all the Ten Commandments. And you can kind of picture him saying that with a little bit of a snicker. But you also need to sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me. What is Jesus doing there? He's diagnosing the exact problem. That man had no desire to follow Jesus. He was very content with all of his money. That was his God. And Jesus does that with his word. You ever, you ever go to a doctor and they start pressing and prodding? Does it hurt here? How about here? And then eventually they land on the exact spot and you want to show them how much it hurts by returning the favor? If you ever had a root canal and they spray that really cold spray on your tooth to see how sensitive it is? 
You've never had that? It's a treat. You should get it if you haven't. That's what Jesus is doing here with this man and his heart of sin. He's identifying the exact spot, the exact thing in his life that he is so tied to that he can't let go. And he's saying, well, on the outside, everything might look just fine, but there's something underneath there. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. And that means these things that you're worshiping have to be put to death. Because loving the Lord your God with, in that way means with 100% of your heart and with 100% of your mind and with 100% of your motives and with 100% of your time. Love him so much that you are always content and you are always grateful for who he is and you're so thankful for his wisdom and no matter what he brings into his life, you're turning, you're following him, you're able to walk through every circumstance without grumbling and complaining. Love God so much that it translates into loving your neighbor as yourself, which means you'll meet the needs of your neighbor with all of the same swiftness and all of the same zeal and the same resources that you would, meet to, you would use to meet your own needs. So when he says to the rich young ruler, sell everything and give it to the poor, what he means is if you love me, no matter what I bring into your life, you should eagerly and happily walk in it. And you should be so aware of my wisdom that you would immediately say, hey, you created the universe. I didn't. So you must know what you're doing. Here, take the money. But you know, because we're so tempted by the world and the flesh and the devil, our natural response is to say, surely he means something else here, right? He didn't really expect that man to sell everything and give it away and give the proceeds to the poor. Why do we respond that way? Because by our very nature, we love ourselves with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And our habitual way of movement is away from the things the Lord calls us to, not toward them. And so at the very heart of our faith is the conviction and the reality and the understanding that we cannot see who Jesus Christ is and why he lived and died until we begin to grasp an understanding of our guilt before God in our sin. And when we understand our nature, we begin to understand that, that even if I could keep every one of God's commandments externally, the real work would still need to be done internally because my nature is fixed on sin from the moment of conception. So it's not just that I'm a rule breaker. It's far worse than that. My nature is depraved. My nature makes it impossible to do things I'm being commanded to do. And some of you may be willing to admit, yes, I have a bad record. I have made mistakes. Uh, the popular thing to say today is there have been missteps and mistakes made. But I've tried to live a good life and I've tried to do better. But if you don't see that at the very nature, 
what you're doing is constantly transgressing the law of God, you will never see any hope for actual change or improvement that you're so desperately longing for by being a so-called better person. You may change a few habits, but your nature is never radically transformed. And then uh, that begins by saying, I know what sin is, and I know where it comes from. I am a sinner. I was born a sinner. Sin is in my heart, and my natural desire is to sin. And as Christians, that's where we have to be. That's how we come into the Christian faith. And God will work with that. That's the starting place. But without a biblical doctrine of sin, you can't understand what God does in salvation. You can't understand the message of the gospel. You can't understand how the world operates. You can't understand why things are the way they are or what's wrong with you and why you're miserable all the time. And I'm saying that the Bible's answer to all of this is the doctrine of sin. You and I are sinful from conception, and apart from Christ, we are following the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that's what sin is. But what does sin do? What are the results of sin? We see in verses 1 and 2, look again, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul tells us that the result of sin is that we are dead in trespasses. And as a result of sin, we are the sons of disobedience. So sin is in our spiritual genes, as we've already talked about. It's our nature. It's who we are. And we are dead because of it. However, it seems like, doesn't it, in verses 2 and 3, he's not saying we're dead, but that we're actually very alive. Notice the language he uses, we're following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 3 says we once lived, we have passions, we are carrying out desires. So in terms of our rebellion and our disobedience, there really is no question at all about where we're at, right? We are very much alive and active. But in being alive to disobedience, we were dead to obedience. To be alive to rebellion, we are dead to submission. In being alive to unbelief, we are dead to true faith. We do not have a living spiritual nature to incline us to do anything for the glory of God and to be relying on his power. And lacking that spiritual nature, we were dead. Dead to righteousness, dead to holiness, dead to obedience, dead to faith. Uh, Perhaps you've heard people talk about man's salvation as though uh, we were out uh, in the middle of an ocean. We were shipwrecked and we're struggling, and we're drowning, and we need help. We need a life raft, and along comes God through one of his servants, and he throws out the rope, and all we have to do is reach out and grab that rope, and we'll be saved as he pulls us in. But that's not the picture Paul paints, is it? You're not treading water hoping for a rescue from sin. 
you're laying dead on the ocean floor. And you have been from the moment of conception. You have no response to any spiritual stimuli whatsoever. And a dead man, a dead woman, doesn't just reach out and grab anything. And so spiritually, unless God does a supernatural work, like we talked about in chapter 1, we are rocks toward God. Insensitive, unresponsive to the beauty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be dead in transgressions and sin. Spiritually speaking, apart from the sovereign work of God, we have no spiritual inclinations whatsoever. No spiritual life. And so we need a savior. Not only to forgive us from our sins, but to give us actual spiritual life so that our hearts will be inclined to trust him and to obey him. I like the way John Piper says it. He says, we weren't just in the doghouse with God. We really were in the morgue. I'm not just in trouble, I'm dead. And so our thoughts and our actions were not thoughts and actions of the spirit, but actions and thoughts of the flesh. In other words, nothing we felt or did was, was spiritual in pursuit in the, of the glory of God and communion with Christ because we were spiritually dead. We can only do what we are by nature. And so the reality is that apart from Christ, we cannot not sin. When we're spiritually dead, we cannot do anything that is not motivated in some way by sin because it's our nature. And you may think, well, wait a minute, I know non-believers who do good deeds all the time. What about them? What about those people? But what are we doing when we think that way. We are determining on our own, apart from God's standard, what is righteous and what is sin. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. And in Romans 3, 23, we learn that falling short of the glory of God is sin. And if there is a pursuit of a good deed apart from seeking the glory of God, it is sin. And so by nature, we are spiritually dead. And so all of our so-called good deeds are, as Isaiah says, like polluted garments. And so there is no such thing as a truly good deed apart from Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 9, Paul draws an even more vivid picture of our spiritual deadness. He says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So apart from Christ, we are simply in the flesh. We have a mind set on the flesh, which means we are hostile. We are in rebellion against God. And Paul says, in fact, there's so much hostility. We are so much opposed to the flesh that we cannot submit to God's law in any way, which means we cannot please God. And so he writes, the mind 
on the flesh, the mindset on the flesh, is death. So we cannot submit to God. We cannot please God. We can only be insubordinate to God. And we can only displease God. So Paul gives us a rather extensive view of sin in just a few verses here in chapter 2. He describes the believer's life before Christ, which was ruled by the ways of the world and the greatest spiritual enemy of the world, who is Satan. And he characterizes this by the gratification of the flesh and chasing after the things of the world. And as a result, we are all born into a state of death. So the question remains, what can be done about it? If this is the end of the story, if that's all there is, then I'm in big trouble because I know I'm sinful. I know of my natural hostility toward God. I know that he said the wages of sin is death. Is there a remedy for sin? Paul addresses this in verses 4 and 5. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And I want you to take particular notice of two of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. Whenever you see these two words together, pay very close attention because you're going to see something glorious something that can absolutely change your life forever. Right there at the beginning of verse 4, those two words, but God. All that we've said about sin, all that is true about you and all that is true about me, we are spiritually dead. Our only option by our nature is to sin. Our only desire is to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are set against God in hostility. And the wages of all of this is death. But God. And those two words are pregnant with hope and assurance for us. It is indeed we who are apart from Christ, without question, without a doubt, that deserve death. But God, being rich in mercy. And out of a great love, even in the midst of all of it, makes us alive together with Christ by grace. That's what Paul writes. By grace and by grace alone, because God is merciful, because God has love for us, we can be made alive together with Christ from death to life like that. Because, but God. So the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't just have to leave us, people created in his image, without hope. God acts and God does only what God can do to save. And he does so completely out of his nature and his willingness to do so for his own glory. So in three verses, Paul paints this very dark picture of humanity's sinfulness, mankind's brokenness and sin. We were spiritually at the bottom of the ocean, dead. But God. And Paul illuminates this incredible nature of God's grace to dispel the darkness and bring us to the surface and give us breath in our lungs and new life as children of the light. And notice, 
God doesn't place arbitrary stipulations on us to receive his grace. His intent is not malicious. He doesn't devise a list of challenges to complete or hoops to jump through with hard work and sincerity. To be honest, in order to be acceptable for God, we must be one thing, holy. Not kind of holy, because God is absolutely morally perfect. His perfection is all-encompassing. It is so beyond the scope of our imagination that we will be amazed in awe of him and worship him for eternity. And God requires holiness from us. But, of course, we've already identified the problem. We're not. So God doesn't give us some difficult tasks to complete or some difficult standard to meet. We don't take a test and we don't have... uh, things that we can do to work, work it all out. Because God's standard is impossible. God's standard is perfection. So the but God of verse 4 is absolutely essential. It is critical. Without it, we have no hope. We have no life. We remain in death. God must act. And how does God act? Enter Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. By his sacrifice and his payment for our sins on our behalf, God counts us as holy. And this alone qualifies us for an inheritance. And so through the gospel... God not only secures that inheritance for us, he meets every stipulation on our behalf. And he brings us to the place where we can receive that inheritance. He acts decisively at every point along the way to ensure our good. Why? Because he is merciful. Because he is loving. He transforms spiritually dead and utterly sinful people into living followers of Jesus Christ. Alive. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are alive. And you see that in verse 5. We were dead. God acted. And now we are alive. Not on our own. Not for our own use. Not for our own glory. But we are alive together with Christ. And so we see Paul's description of this amazing accomplishment for our sake. And it shows what happens when all that God has achieved on our behalf. Sending Christ, atoning for our sins, conquering death, cleansing us in him. When all of that actually comes into our lives. God didn't send Jesus to, uh, to fulfill some kind of abstract thing. Something with no particular impact. He did it so that he could actually apply Jesus' work to our lives. All that he has done is credited to our account and everything that we have in Christ. Forgiveness of sin, membership in the body of Christ, fellowship with God himself. All of this is a gift from God as a direct result of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I think John Wesley captures all of the reality of this very well in his hymn, And Can It Be? He does a good job of stating the reality of the but God in verse 4. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Every believer in Christ shares this same experience. Whether you're converted when you're young or when you're old, when, if you've been rescued from a horrendous life of evil or one of prideful moralism, all must be brought to life by God's Spirit and have their sins taken away that we might follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. And when this happens in a believer's life, all of the benefits of Ephesians 2 belong to him. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. God gives us this crown that was purchased for us by Christ through the undeserved gift of faith. And he has done everything that was necessary to make this happen for us. And he will do everything to keep that blessing for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made you, brother and sister in Christ, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved.